0: If you can, please go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And we are going to be looking at verses 24 through 39. Matthew chapter 10. Before we get started, I'm going to go ahead and read, starting in verse 24 down to verse 39. The word of the Lord reads A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more? will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim Upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather. Fear him. Who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart. From your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who was in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Let us pray. Precious Lord. God, the call to discipleship. God, it's a hard road. But Lord, you have called us to to take courage because Jesus has overcome the world. Lord, I pray that you would please help me because I am a weak man and there's no way apart from your grace that I can ever communicate the glory of you, God. God, I think of My brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, many who are going through so many different things, God, who need to hear from you, who need to be encouraged, Lord. And Father, there are some here who actually may not know who you are. God, we pray that the gospel would be clear. We pray that the gospel would be our motive, that we would remember Christ. And in this time, Lord God, we pray that you would get all the glory and all the honor. Bless this time. May this be an acceptable time of worship to you, our great God and Savior. God, we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. There was this old commercial, and I don't know if any of you guys had a chance to ever hear this commercial but it went something like this it had this phrase it was an army commercial that said we do more before 9 a.m than most men do all day and as a young man I thought to myself well that's not the best advertisement <laughs> I mean after all if you want to enlist someone shouldn't you tell them the perks shouldn't you tell them the benefits you see, there are very few people who will want to heed that call and sign the dotted line. There is very few who will want to enlist in something that seems like is going to be a very difficult task. You see, today we're talking about discipleship. Specifically, what we're talking about today is what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a follower? If I was to talk to you on the front end. And I was to tell you that, no, you will not be great. Some people will mock you. Some people will ridicule you. Some people will talk really bad about you. Would you still want to be a disciple? And even more, what if I was to tell you that there is a possibility that some of you here will be persecuted, imprisoned, and even placed in jail and eventually even be martyred, put to death because of your faith and your association with Christ, would you want to be a disciple? Would you want to be a follower of Jesus? See, this is where we are in this part of the gospel. Jesus has come on the scene. He is the promised Messiah. The first 10 chapters of Matthew is the announcement of the king. Jesus is coming on the scene and he is telling men, Follow me. Follow me. In the verse 10, verse, the, verses, the first four verses, Jesus, the Bible says that he summoned his disciples to himself. And he's laying out the possible hardships that they're going to go through. He doesn't call them to a time of relaxation, but he has given them a purpose. He has called them out of their profession, and he has commissioned them to go out and to proclaim the gospel. If you were to look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, this is what he tells him. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were commissioned. They were given a responsibility. They were given a stewardship to go out and to proclaim the gospel. But then he starts to tell them the hardships. And he says this in verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. See, Jesus has been teaching his followers the meaning of discipleship telling him that they are to follow him no matter what the road ahead is going to be long it's going to be rocky it's going to be filled with the possibility of persecution many of these men's with the many of these men with the exception of Judas Iscariot followed that call many were persecuted some like Paul the apostle even was beheaded some like John who was outcasts in, at the island of Patmos, but they believe that Jesus was worth it. So here's a question to you today. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth the hardship and the difficulties? And if you were to go all throughout church history, we see very many few men, men of faith who followed the call. Polycarp, told to deny Christ, but no, he refused to deny him. Instead, he was burned alive. And many other men. There are people, even in this particular time, who are in different countries who are facing persecution, who are willing to heed the call. fulfill the commission of Jesus to make more disciples. A man like Carlin and his wife, Michelle, they're in Burundi. What are they doing? Listening to the call to proclaim the gospel. This is the question to you today. Do you want to be a follower of Christ? See, there are three expectations that we must understand if we are to be a disciple of Jesus. And number one, You are to imitate your master. Number two, you are to fear your heavenly father. And number three, you are to acknowledge your savior. Look at me, look with me at verse 24. And again, the first point that I want to point out here is to, one is to imitate your master. And I just want to look at verse 25, and it says here, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. just want to point out that word like, it's used twice here. A disciple to become like his teacher, a slave like his master. A disciple, a slave, he is to become like his master or like their teacher. They are, in other words, to imitate the one who is superior to themselves. Look at verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. This word disciple, it's used 72 times in the gospel of Matthew. It makes up 25% of the time that it's used in the New Testament. Matthew has a whole lot to say about discipleship. It's about following Christ. A disciple was one who was a learner, one who was a student, a pupil. One who sits at the feet of one who has superior knowledge and education and understanding. That way he's able to learn. He's teachable. But then I want you to look at this word slave. Some of your translations might say servant. The idea of slave is more appropriate. Now, we don't like to talk about the word slave, especially when we think about American slavery. But the idea of slave is one of humility. The idea of slave is one who does not have his own rights, who does everything that his master tells him to do, submitting to whatever his master asks of him. You see, when we think about imitation, there's this requirement of humility. You see, both the disciple and the slave, they're humble. He recognizes in verse 24 that he's not above. He's actually beneath. He's below. He's inferior. But what we also can see in this text is that imitation or to imitate our master, there's a it requires proximity. Again, what I'm telling you is that Jesus is went out calling men to himself. There's relationship that's going on. In order for them to imitate, they have to see the life that he lived, the walk the way that he walked. In order to imitate someone, I have to have a pattern in front of me. And Jesus calls his disciples to imitate himself. And this is what's going on. Jesus is calling these men to himself and saying, imitate me, live as I live, do as I do. Be willing to suffer if you have to suffer. But unlike just any teacher or a slave master, Jesus is so much more. If you, for instance, were to look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is like, Jesus says, learn of me. And this is exactly what these disciples are doing. They're learning from Christ. But this idea of humility is still communicated. If we were to look at John chapter 15, verse 20, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And this text is exactly communicating that. These disciples, they were to follow and to imitate Jesus, even if it meant hardship. And Jesus does this many times on the front end. He tells people that it's not going to be the most glamorous life. It's not going to be a life of ease and comfort. No, to follow Christ is going to be difficult. He does this, for instance, with Paul the Apostle. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. And what you see in Acts chapter 9, Paul, or excuse me, his name was Saul before being called Paul, was a persecutor of the church. And so he's traveling on Damascus Road and a great light hits him and he's blinded. Anyhow, the Lord Jesus appears to Ananias and he says in verse 15, speaking of Paul. But the Lord said to him, that is, to Ananias, go, for he, speaking of Saul, also known as Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God had told him at the very front end that This Paul is going to suffer for my name's sake. And what do we see about the account of Paul? He's beaten, shipwrecked. A man who was beat, put out of the city, walks back in to continue the ministry that God had called him to. When he was prophesied, saying, Don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to this town because persecution awaits you. He says, I'm willing to die for the gospel. I'm willing to die. To fulfill the calling that God has for me, He was radically committed to His Lord and His Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus here is calling His disciples to imitate Him. But there's more. Jesus was called Beelzebub. Look at verse 25 again, the latter half of that. If they have called the head of this house, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Beelzebul. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. and Look at verse 24. Matthew 12, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul. The ruler of the demons. They were calling Jesus Beelzebul. He was casting out demons, and they were accrediting the miraculous work of Christ with this false deity. Turn it. Turn your bibles to Mark chapter three, and look at verse twenty-two. Same idea here. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. They were calling Jesus Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebul probably has its origination in Philistine, a false deity in Philistia. The word Baal means Lord, and usually the latter half of that word would describe what kind of Lord he was. So Beelzebul would be Lord of the flies, or some of your translations are, if you were to look in other texts, it talks about Beelzebub, which means Lord of filth. Some have said that he might be Lord of the abode, or Lord of the dwelling. It's inconclusive exactly what this particular deity was. However, the point of the matter is, is that they were ascribing Jesus as Satan, when it says that Beelzebub is the ruler of the demons, they were saying essentially that Jesus is Satan. Why? Why would they call Jesus Satan? What did Jesus do to have such hostility against him? If you were to look at John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus is talking to his family and he tells his family, the world cannot hate you but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You see, when Jesus comes on a scene, he's telling men that essentially they are evil. Your works are evil. Everything that you do is evil. And they don't like that. And not only that, he proclaims essentially that he is God. And because of that, they want to crucify him. Jesus spoke the truth. And because of him speaking the truth about the wicked and evil works of men, they wanted to crucify him. You see, imitators of Jesus will also follow suit. Imitators, disciples of Jesus will also be called evil. Where you work, what do people think about you? Do they think you're just a nice Christian who just really nice, doesn't say anything to ruffle any feathers? What do people say to you when you're out and they say, hey, tell me about your faith? And you say, well, you know, Jesus loves you. Do you speak the truth? Do men praise you for because of how nice you are? I would remind you in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. That is heavy. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Disciples of Jesus who speak the truth. Now, I'm not talking about being a jerk. I'm not talking about us being the offense. I'm talking about the message, the truth of Christ offending people. It makes you uncomfortable. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Imitate me. Imitate me. Persecutions may happen. Persecutions, they just might happen. Now, granted, we're not in some of the countries that are not allowed to worship the way that we are able to worship here. We're not facing that kind of persecution, but who knows what's going to happen. Jesus is preparing them. Are you prepared? You see, even if we were to be persecuted, we are still to rejoice. The Bible tells us in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, for my sake rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So you are to imitate your master. Second, you are to fear your heavenly father. You are to fear your heavenly father. Look at verse 26. I'm actually going to look at verse 28. But in verses 26 to 31, this word fear is used four times. Three times it's used negatively. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. But there's one time where fear is actually used positively. Fear. And he says, fear your heavenly father. Fear him who has all power. Look at verse 28. I'm just going to look at the latter half of verse 28. It says, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, if we have a fear of God, it puts everything in perspective. When we think about the awesomeness and the greatness and the majesty and the glory of who God is as creator and the one who sustains all things and knowing that he created me and man who I fear, he has nothing more but a created being. Why would I fear any man? You see, fear can mute the Christian's testimony. Fear can be like water on a fire. Fear can be like quenching the fiery zeal that is supposed to be in each and every one of us. Fear is like a snare, a trap. The Bible says in Proverbs twenty-nine twenty-five, the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The Bible also tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. When we think about the fear of the Lord, it also keeps you from sin. For instance, if we were to look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, this is when the children of Israel, they arise, or excuse me, they arrive at Mount Sinai, and they are experiencing the thunders, the flashing, the God speaking in this clouds. And he says, don't come past a certain place, because if you come past this place, you will be destroyed. And they're trembling in fear before God. And Moses says to them, do not fear. For God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. You see, if you have a greater fear of God, you're not going to sin. Specifically, the sin of fearing man. If you fear man. If you're trapped. It cannot do. It cannot obey the things of God because of your fear for man. You have a very small God. Fear and emotion follows what you believe. And if you really believe in the awesomeness of God, the majesty of God, you can be like the psalmist who said, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, if we have a right perspective of the awesomeness and the greatness of who God is, we will not fear men. And if we have that perspective, the fear of our Heavenly Father, we can hear what Jesus is saying in verse, starting in verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them. The word therefore connects to the previous couple of verses as far as imitating what Christ had asked of his disciples. Therefore, do not fear them. Do not fear who? Who is them? Look at verse 16. And he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And them is their wolves. They're described as wolves. They, these are those who are hunting you down like your fresh meat, <laughs> wanting to devour you. This is what those who oppose the gospel message of Christ or like They want to devour you. Do not fear them. Look at verse 17. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Specifically, he's talking about Jews right here. Who is them? Those who are Jews who want to attack you. Those who oppose your message. Look at verse 18. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Who is them? Governors, kings, those who are in authority. And not only that, it's pagan nations. He says Gentiles. Who is them? Look at verse 21 and 22. Brother will betray brother to death and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Those are people in your own household. Who is them? People in your own household. Verse 22, you will be hated by all. The them is all types of people, poor, rich, doesn't matter. Those in high positions, those in low positions, those who oppose the gospel message of Christ, those who have not embraced it. Those are the ones that you are not to fear. But we're also not to fear because of the gospel. We have been commissioned to proclaim and preach the gospel message. Again, look at verse 27. He says, what I tell you in darkness, speak in light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. This is the gospel. What was secret has been made known to these particular men, entrusted to these men, to go out and to declare it to the rest of the world. We are recipients of the obedience of the apostles that's been handed down from century to century to century. And we have been entrusted with a stewardship to continue on and proclaiming that same truth to the world. We are not to fear also because of temporary threats. Look at verse 28 again. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. You see, man's persecution, man at best can destroy this body. I'm not saying that there are not dangers in this world. But what you have to understand is that what man can do to you at the very worst is take your life. But your life cannot be taken from them because your soul is in the hand of God. And if you're here today and you do not believe in the gospel message of Christ, you need to understand, as it says in Romans 2.9, tribulation and anguish awaits you because you practice evil and you need someone who is going to be your savior. And that's only in Jesus Christ. But man can only take away your physical life. But those of us who have put our faith and our trust in Christ, our soul is in the hands of God. Do not fear them because they can't take your soul. Do not fear because of God's watchful eye. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, are not too sparrows soul for a cent. He's asking a rhetorical, a rhetorical question that should be responded with an affirmative. Well, yes. And yet not one of them f- will fall to the ground apart from your father. You see, the idea of these two sparrows being sold for a cent is basically Jesus saying that these things that are so insignificant, so cheap, so undervalued, God even watches them. If God watches cheap, insignificant birds, will he not watch you? Does he not keep a record of everything that's going on in your life, the persecution and everything else that you may be experiencing? Does not God see you? Everything happens under the watchful eye of God. And this is what Jesus is saying. Do not fear them. Do not fear them also because God is both sovereign and his providence is displayed in his sovereignty throughout the world. He says in verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. It's not that he just counts the hairs of your head. He knows how many hairs you have. Of course, that makes me want to laugh. He knew that I would be bald. (laughs) I do have hair on my face. Thank you. (laughs) The point of what I'm saying is that God knows everything about you. He knew when you were to be born here on this earth and he knew when you were going to die and depart from this earth. Your life is in the very hands of God. God is completely sovereign over everything that happens over you. And because of that, do not fear them. Also in verse 31, he says, Do not fear. So you are not to fear. You are more valuable than sparrows. Do not fear because you have value. Now, when I say that you have value, what you also have to understand is that we are not intrinsically valuable. We were once, again, speaking, of those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we, we were once enemies of God, opposed to God, in opposition to God. But God, the Father, sees us through the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, thus allowing you to have some sense of value. It's because of Jesus' perfection that has been given to you. Some will say this is imputation that's given to us, that the Father has placed value on you. So do not fear. If you were, for instance, to go and, God forbid, even die or become a martyr for the sake of Christ. You must remember that God values you. The Bible says in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. When you think about how much God thinks about you, I don't think you realize how much you're on the heart of God. The Bible says in Psalm 139, verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, there will be more numbered than the sand. God's thoughts towards you are constant. And not only that, but the Son, Jesus, is at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes on your behalf. And not only that, sometimes when we don't even know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with utterings that are too deep for words. You are constantly on the heart of God. Do not fear them. Do not fear them. But what I want you to see here is that it's all about God. It is God who has the watchful eye. It is God who holds life in his very hands, whether you die or whether you live. It is God who is completely sovereign over your life. If you have a fear of your heavenly father, you will not fear man. My prayer for you guys this entire week is, Lord, teach us the fear of the Lord. Teach us the fear of the Lord. And when I talk about fear, this is not a fear that I'm going to be cast into hell. No. The Bible says in 1 John 5, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And the context is the judgment, final judgment but yet there's still a reverence. There's still an awe of who God is. There still is a fear of God, but we don't fear the way those should fear who are outside of the family of God, outside of Christ. So you are to fear your heavenly father, which brings me to my third point. You are to acknowledge your savior. You are to... Acknowledge your Savior. Look at verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You are to acknowledge by confessing Jesus before men. You are not to be ashamed of professing and talking about Jesus. Our relationship with God is is linked with him only through his son, Jesus. Jesus says something very similar. If you were to look at Mark chapter eight, verse 38, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. He's talking about that final judgment. If you are ashamed of Christ today, Jesus says, I will be ashamed to confess you before my father later on. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one has a relationship with God but through Christ. The Bible says in Romans 10:9 that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, we will be saved. We are to confess and preach and proclaim him, talk about our Lord and our Savior. And what does it mean to confess? Again, look at verse 32. He says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men. When we talk about confession, is this simply just a verbal assent? Is this just to acknowledge this truth and just say it out loud? Is it just that? And I would tell you, no. To confess literally means to come into agreement. It is to agree. It is to agree with God. It is to agree with the decrees of heaven, the precepts of heaven. It is to agree that Jesus came and died and lived a perfect life, died and rose again on the third day. It is to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. It is to believe, it is to agree with the Holy Spirit's conviction that we are sinners can, and unable to save ourselves. It is to agree with the written word of God. Confession is more than just, I, yes, I believe that. No, it, it is to agree from the heart. And the opposite of that is to deny him. Verse 33, he says, but whoever denies me before men, this is the complete opposite. It is to not agree with heaven. It is, it is to disagree with the decrees of heaven. It is to disagree with the precepts and the commands of God. It is to disagree with the written word of God. It is basically to say that I am my own God. I will do what I, own, what I want to do. I will not confess Christ. Like I said, to confess Christ is more than just a verbal assent, but also to deny Christ is more than just to deny Him verbally. You can deny Jesus in the way that you live your life. Turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verse 16. <laughs> And I'm going to read, I'm going to start at verse 15. It says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess, same word, (laughs) same word that we had in Matthew. They profess to know God or confess, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable, and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. You see what we believe is going to get lived out. You cannot agree with Jesus and go live a life like a pagan. That it's incompatible. It doesn't happen. If you are to agree with Jesus, love Jesus, embrace Jesus, it's going to have an effect on your life. And I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect, but there's going to be a transformation. And many of you can attest to that. When you came to Christ, you say, well, this is how I was, but this is what I am now. Just like an old preacher, I remember him telling me, it's kind of like when I used to sin in my, before I was saved, you can videotape Well, Ty is be sinning. He's doing his thing. He's just sinning. But when I became a Christian, it's a snapshot. Ty sinned. And again, it's not about, being perfect. I'm not saying being perfect. But fundamentally, if I believe Jesus, it's going to have an effect on my life. You are to acknowledge your Savior. You are also to acknowledge your Savior did not come here to bring peace. Look at verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, when Jesus says that I did not come to bring peace, he says it twice. He's emphasizing it. I didn't come here to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Now, Jesus is speaking figuratively. Jesus is not talking about a sword fight. He's not talking about war. He is talking about the message, the content of the message, And because of the content of the message, it's going to cause hostility, even in the most intimate relationships. People are going to hate you because of your message. He says in verse 35, this is an explanatory clause. He says, for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The content of the message is going to divide homes. There was a young man I met about two, three weeks ago. And he traveled here from Texas. And he wanted to talk to Pastor John MacArthur. Well, Pastor John was not in that office that day. So he got, he had to settle with me. And so what I found out is that he came here because he was listening to guys like Paul Washer and messages about salvation. He was a young man who came from Uganda and he was on a student visa living in Texas with his aunt and his mother. So he's talking about his form of Christianity when he was younger was at odds with what he was hearing from these preachers and teachers that he was listening to on YouTube, he said they had this name and claim it as prosperity gospel, and he recognized that what he was hearing was not of God. So that was what caused him to come here because he wanted to talk to someone about the gospel, and he was troubled, and he was troubled. Even more because he, again, he lives in his home, but his family, they're charismatic. The name it, claim it, prosperity gospel. He understood what they believed was not right. And so he's coming and says, Ty, well, I can't go to church because they won't allow me to. I have to go to their church. Now, they were confessing, but again, were they in agreement with the Bible? And he asked me, Ty, what? What am I supposed to do? So I take him to this text. And I tell this young man, you have to confess Christ. You have to agree with God. And if it has an effect on your family, so be it. It doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. It doesn't mean you have to be mean about it. But you have to confess Christ. So you have to walk with Christ. I don't know what happened to that young man. Hopefully we put him in touch with someone in Texas and hopefully someone was able to follow up with him. I don't know. But my point is, is that the content, the message, it's going to even cause divisions even within your own household. You are to acknowledge your Savior even before your own household. You are to acknowledge your love for the Savior more than your family. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This word love, it's not the unconditional love of God. It's not agapao. This is phileo. This is where we get um, Philadelphia, our brotherly love. It is to have an an interest in something or someone. Specifically, it is having an interest in Jesus. It means to be devoted, committed. It means to be loyal. Jesus is saying that if if your loyalty is not uh, first prioritized in me and you love others more and your priority is with them more than me, then guess what? You're not worthy of me. Are you loyal to Jesus? Are you clinging to Jesus? You are to acknowledge your savior, even if it means death. You are to acknowledge your savior more than yourself. Look at verse 38. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. When we think about the cross, we think about Jesus when he was beat great amount of flesh being ripped from his body, bleeding. Yet he's carrying his cross to the place where he is to be crucified. When it talks about the Christian must take up his cross, it's, one commentator suggested it's like putting your own head in a noose. It's like taking the plank to death. Now, I, I don't, Want to want you to misunderstand this. This doesn't mean suicide. It means that I am dying to my self interest. I'm dying to my pride. I'm dying to whatever it is that I want out of life. Again, Jesus is master. He's Lord. Jesus, whatever you want, do it. It is essentially the very same thing that Paul the Apostle says I die daily. Every day that you wake up is to say, Cross, put a cross on your head, I don't know, whatever it is that it takes to remind yourself that you, it's not about you, it's about Christ. It's about Christ. It's about glorifying him. It's about his honor, his glory, not mine. Jesus, what do you want me to do today? This is why it's so important to be filled with the scriptures of God so you know the will of God and you would act accordingly. Acknowledge your Savior more than yourself. You'll also acknowledge your Savior, even if it means death. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. God has called us to obedience. And I do feel compelled to say this, because I come across, and I understand that there's fear, even with COVID, but I come across Christians sometimes who dismiss the importance of gathering with saints. Well, I'm not going to go to church. Well, are you part of a fellowship group? No. Are you part of a small group? No. Who do you know? I don't know anyone. I don't want to dismiss those who have health issues or whatnot. However, God has called us to gather. God has called us to worship. A Christian who was isolated is an oxymoron. You can't do it well, I'll just zoom in to the meetings. No, we are to gather. And through our gathering, the glory of God is taking place. The presence of God is in our midst. A Christian who was isolated is an oxymoron. If you're trying to preserve your life, for a few extra years, you're missing the point. Jesus clearly says, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. It is Christians who are to give up their lives and say, God, to your glory, I'd rather be obedient to you, even if it means my death. And because of that, Lord, I want to walk with you. Foundation. Are you disciples? I hope to God that you will take the time to really examine what's going on in your heart. And this question would reverberate in your mind, that you would wake up. Are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you an imitator of your master? Do you fear your heavenly father? Do you acknowledge? your savior. Jesus essentially lays out before you two options, heaven or hell. You see the thing with hell, the the road, it's broad. It's well-worn. Many walk that path. It's also, it's very enticing. It's, it's streets are like glittered with gold. The best of music. It's comfort. is smoother than silk. It's enticing, it's tempting. Sin, hell, and that path. It's tempting. That's why people walk it. And then Jesus lays out before you his path, his walk to follow in his sandals. And that path, in that road, it's rocky. The terrain, it's rough. Sometimes it feels like it's like you're going uphill, and sometimes it feels like the sun is just clashing down on your back, and you're well-worn, and you don't want to take another step. But I have to tell you it's worth it. You see that? path to destruction. It's like a mouse who's going to get that one piece of cheese. And once he's caught in the trap, he looks back and he says, that was my destruction. That was my persecution. That was my death. So is the fool who does not want to follow after Jesus. Are you a disciple of Christ? Do you love him more than anything else that this world has to offer? Are you walking with him? Are you serving him? Are you doing all that you can for the eternal weight of glory that's promised on the other half, on the other end of death? Or are you caught up with the here and now, the things, of the passing pleasures of sin? Are you a disciple? I pray that you would walk with Christ and that you would take the disciples' cross and live for the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray that you will please help us to examine our hearts, Lord God, to really understand the meaning of discipleship and what does it mean to walk with you. God, through our lives, I pray that you would get all honor, get all praise, get all glory. And God, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.